You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are in our second Sunday um, of our series called Untangling Christmas as we now approach and, uh, the Christmas season. Um, and as we get ready for the birth of our Savior, it's amazing how messy life can be. It feels like that wad of Christmas lights all kind of jumbled together. We've got all sorts of emotions, all sorts of things going in our lives. Not only overscheduled and overworked and overexpecting, all sorts of things, but we also are dealing with loss and grief and uh, alienation and issues in our relationships. It can be a tangled mess at Christmas. It really can be. What's ironic is that the Christmas season itself celebrated how God entered into this mess of a world that we have. And what did he do in it? He started to untangle the mess by becoming part of it. And yet we've turned it around, the simplistic story of Christmas, the first Christmas celebration of Jesus' birth, and somehow it has just gotten way out of control. Way out of control. Um, How's it been going so far for y'all? Good Thanksgiving? Black Friday okay? (laughs) Well, um, I hope the rest of the season is one that is deeply meaningful and deeply... um, transformative so that we not only, quote, get back to the essence of what Christmas is, but to understand how God works in a messy world. And I think that's what we're seeing in the prophet Isaiah. So, hey, the the idea is we're going to go through the first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah over these weeks and celebrate the prophecies that are in the book of Isaiah against the backdrop of Uh, the time and place that Isaiah lived, 700 years before Christ was born, Israel was not in a good place. It was a messy world of politics and palace intrigue and uh, and (laughs) everything that you can think of today that you're going like, what a mess we're in, was happening then just with a little less technology. That's about the difference. Okay. Um, So we're starting now today in um, Isaiah chapter 5. And you might be wondering, I've never preached on this chapter before. I don't know of a lot of people who've preached on this chapter before. But it is a very famous, believe it or not, um, parable, um, metaphor for Israel that Isaiah spins here, this story. It's a love song, in fact, he calls it, which actually... Everybody at the time of Jesus knew because it was such a nice little, neat little seven-verse story that explained how God works in this world. And yet you go like, well, wait a minute, but that was Isaiah's time. It was for Israel. Why are we studying it? Well, um, I listened to a pretty powerful sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones this week who preached on this text in Great Britain a while back during his lifetime, you know, not after his lifetime, right? But, um, and he gives us a reason why we study something like this. And he said it this way, in these great prophetic messages, we have at the same time a summary of what God is saying to the whole world of men. You see the nation of Israel is but a kind of special, a specimen nation, uptight with which God 
has set forth in order that through her he may speak to the whole of mankind. Did you get that? So he sees this. We're going to um, kind of look at how God worked with Israel and Judah at the time of Isaiah and see how God works typically with people, with his people, with us. So let's read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And by the way, you can uh, look all this stuff up if you want to on your Bible app. Uh, the Bible app, right? You got it in front of you? It's there? Following along so far? Okay, good. All right. Let's read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So from these uh, short verses, we're going to uh, find four different things, uh, four different points in our text. What God did, as Isaiah speaks in this parable, what God expects, who God surprisingly is in this parable that's hidden in it, and how God responds. So, first of all, what God did. Now, it says that Isaiah is singing a love song for his beloved. My beloved planted a vineyard. And notice it wasn't just anywhere that he planted, but on a fertile hill, the perfect spot. He did the brack-breaking work as well of digging out all the stones out of the soil to make it as fertile and as possibly good as it could be. He built a vat and a wine press, and a tower, and a wall. He did everything he could possibly do, and he chose the vine and planted it there himself. That's the parable. And it's all a parable about how God chose Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then he chose them again when Israel was in slavery in Egypt under Moses. And he took them out of Egypt, and he provided for them a land that they did not work for. I don't know if you realize that or not, but the story of the Bible is not that God took them out of Egypt and brought them into a wilderness and created the land there, or that he took them out of Egypt, brought them, and brought them to territory that nobody had before. But what he did is he brought them to the land of promise, and they got to inherit a land that other people had dug the wells and planted the trees and orchards and the vineyards. Everything was done for them. 
In fact, um, when God wanted them to enter the promised land, he had them send one spy for each of the 12 tribes. And when they got into the land, this is what they found according to Numbers. And, he told, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And there, this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. They said, yes, it's fertile. Everything's great in this land, but uh, there's giants and fortified cities, and we don't know. They got anxious and despaired and focused on the wrong things rather than on who God is and how he can work, except for Caleb and Joshua. And 40 years later, when they finally did enter the land with Joshua, what you notice in the book of Joshua, you read through that whole book, one of the great themes is that Joshua is not really in charge. He is a general, but God is the commander in chief. <laughs> and, and, and there are comical scenes of how Joshua and the people, I mean, it's a liturgical parade around Jericho for seven days. That's how they conquered the city? Blowing horns and marching? Doesn't sound like military might at all. In fact, again and again and again, God makes sure that God's people understand it. They aren't the ones who won the land over. God gave it to them. And they walked alongside of what God was doing. So when you read also the stories of Israel, what you find is you don't find a nation that God chose because God saw, wow, these people are fantastic. They're so sophisticated. They're smart. They got so many gifts. I want to be connected to them. If that were the, question, the issue, then God would have said, wow, I'm choosing Egypt. Forget these slaves. Or Babylon, somebody who's smart and sophisticated and understands the world and physics and math and science and astrology and all these things and has a real sense of culture, not Israel. But God chose Israel and God planted Israel in God's vineyard. It was by grace that God chose and covenanted and promised Israel that he would say, you are my choice. But like planting this vineyard and the purpose of this vineyard, we see that God also has expectations. What does God expect? Now, this is a surprising feature in this text. I, what, why is it? What? Okay. What? My expectations are just blown away this morning right now. <laughs> it's funny, pretty funny. Okay, what does God expect? You know, a surprising feature of this text is that Isaiah does use that word expect. It's the word kawa in Hebrew for God. And there's only three times in the Bible that God is said to have expected, that looked for, that wanted something and guess what? All three of them occur in this short passage. All three are right here. God has expectations. And do you realize they're not met? They're not met. Just like the beloved who planted a vineyard that did everything to produce a great crop, was looking for good grapes and found out he didn't get them, wild grapes. God has expectations. And the way it says in this text at the end, the last verse, 
His expectations are for justice and righteousness. That is mishpat. Justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. And righteousness is zedekah. Now, what's really fascinating in this text is there's kind of a play on words, and we'll get to that. So God wanted justice, mishpat. And justice doesn't mean Judge Judy justice, okay? I'm sorry, it's, even though that's a great kind of fun show to watch. It's not just like, this is the way it is, this is my judgment, boom, the matter's over. But justice being in the fact that he's looking to his people to treat people properly, fairly, justly, or to actually help them to gain ground, to be on a level playing field, have the status they should have as the people of God. So it's more restorative justice to restore what might have been lost. And righteousness. Righteousness is that fact of status, of having a right relationship with God and with others, and that we treat people as people rightly and fairly, that your relationships are good and clear. But what does God find? (laughs) He finds that just like all the other nations, the people of God become exploiters and manipulators and aggressors and oppressors and enslavers. They have not treated, they have not followed justice or righteousness at all. In fact, and what's, why is God looking for these things? Because that is who God is. God is just. God is righteous. And he showed his justice and his righteousness to Israel by what he did. You will find that the whole story of the exodus from Egypt through the, through the wilderness into the promised land is described by God as how his justice is made known. Because they were slaves, and he showed justice to them by delivering them from slavery. They were slaves in a dead-end situation, not a people, not at all a people, not an identity that they could identify themselves as the people of God. They didn't know anything about it, and God, by his righteous right arm, it says, delivered them. Righteousness and justice are who God is, and therefore, he wants his people to reflect it. Moses basically said the same thing. You think I have long sermons? Try Deuteronomy. It's one sermon. The entire book in the Pentateuch. And Moses speaks to his people in chapter 4, verse 5 to 8. See? I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? <clears throat> Israel wasn't going to be known for uh, military might or tall buildings or amazing culture in the sense of culture being the arts and sciences and all that stuff. They weren't going to be known as a shipbuilding people or a people that were seafaring and trade, none, they would be known by how they treated one another righteously and justly and by the closeness and nearness of their God. And yet, 
That's where it all went south. Instead of responding with justice, Isaiah says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And this is um, fascinating because in the Hebrew it says, uh, it's kind of a play on words. He looked for justice, mishpat, but what he found was mishpach, bloodshed. He was looking for um, zedekah, righteousness, but what he found is tzedekah, an outcry. Something so, like, just off the mark. Not quite. God has expectations of his people. <laughs> And they weren't met. Wait a minute. What kind of a God? How is it that God doesn't get what he wants? Have you ever thought about that? I think a lot of parents understand this. Sadly. And I'm not. not, Sadly, tragically, especially, um, you know, I've been a pastor for a few decades now. And in my other churches, I've talked to a lot of heartbreak and heartache with parents who done everything they could think of for their children as good as they could for their kids, right? And, you know, they got, they sacrificed and put them in the best education they could possibly do. They, they, they provided for them. They, they gave them everything they didn't have in growing up. And they knew what hardship was. They knew what it, you know, how difficult it was. Some of them had gone through the depression as a child. And now they provided for their children everything they could think of, everything society said to do. And they were hoping that their kids would become productive and wonderful. And, and instead, so often, too often, I heard stories of heartache of how they don't call me. They never come by. I've never really heard any thanks. And it's not like looking for a payback. It was just looking for a, a relationship. For appreciation. For that the kids turned out so that they were productive in this world and really served others and did something that, was, that exceeded what their parents were able to do. You know, now I know if it were a business, you know, you'd say there was no return on investment, no ROI, right? But it's not. Raising children is not a transaction. You will never. God doesn't expect. I don't think this is what we have to understand about God's expectations, too. Parents don't expect. Wait a minute. Now, we spent $175,000 on raising you over the last 15, 20 years. In addition, if we put down the labor that we put into raising you, you owe us a half a million dollars. We'd like to see it in our retirement account in the next five years. You can do it in installments. Do you understand what I mean? We don't expect that. God doesn't expect, quote, a return on investment of like, okay, now I did all this. Now I need to at least get. He is looking just for a response. His expectation is one of a loved, loving parent to a child. You know, Jesus tells a parable about all this too. It's one of his most famous parables, the prodigal son. 
And I don't know if you realize in that the prodigal son is not the only problem. Both sons were. Do you realize both despised and did not love their father? Neither of them did. And what could the father have done? I mean, the father did everything that we can see in this parable. There is no blame on the father for why did this son turn out this way and this one turn out this way? There's no explanation for that. Jesus wants us to sit into that parable and understand that's the human race. Some become irresponsible and self-expressing and defiant and rebellious. And others become uptight and act like it's a boss-employee relationship, as the older son did, and then complain about that. But all of us fit into that parable one way or the other. And only one of them ends up back in the father's house, and it's not because the son was so good at this, the prodigal. It is because the father does something unthinkable and runs out to meet the son, protect him, clothe him, welcome him, celebrate over him, and then the son finally realizes his father's love for the first time. That his father is not upset or angry that he didn't get a return on his investment, but he's just glad his son is still alive, he was dead and now alive in relationship to him. And at the end of that parable, you have to wonder what's going on with the older son. We have no idea how that one turns out. And the real question, I think, in that parable, as the question that comes up in this vineyard's parable, is why in the world would a father put up with anything like this from two of his sons? And why in the world would the beloved in this parable put up with a vineyard that responded this way? Why would God put up with no return on his investment, if you want to put it that way, in a business transaction. Why does he put up with any of this? Why does he keep letting it happen? The world isn't filled with righteousness and justice. <laughs> You've noticed that. We have had so much talk about justice, so much need for righteousness and right relationships, and all I see is bloodshed and antipathy and tribalism. So the question really comes down to this parable that Isaiah is shocking in some ways. What kind of a God is this? And that's where we see um, our, who God surprisingly is in this parable. I don't know if you realize this. Isaiah, like I said before, Isaiah calls this a love song, a little ballad kind of a heartbreak ballad like country western music usually is, but the dog doesn't die and the pickup, it's not about the pickup dog, but it's about, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> if you really like, I, but as far, it's really a love song and it's a tragic love song. And what's fascinating is the name that Isaiah speaks about God, not just once or a couple of, and the only place in all of the Hebrew scriptures this name is ever given for God. And that is my beloved, it's Yadidi. Now, it does occur in the Old Testament, in the book right before Isaiah. It's called the Song of Solomon. Have you ever read that one? It's about romance. It's about infatuation. And that's where it says in Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter seven, verse six, how beautiful are you. And ple how pleasing, my love, Yadidi. 
with your delights. <coughs> a romantic relationship. What's um, shocking is that Isaiah, next chapter, next week, by the way, Isaiah 6, when he sees God in the temple, or just the train of his robe, that's all he sees, and only the seraphim, he never sees God directly. Isaiah himself, the prophet, is speechless and doesn't even know what to say, and he dare not, he, he thinks any of the words coming out of his mouth are just going to, to ruin him. And yet he has the audacity to say, my love, my beloved, and what we see is Isaiah gets it, that the essence of God's character, that justice and righteousness are there, but the essence of God's character is love. Always. I love Terence Frethheim. Um, he's written a lot. He's an Old Testament scholar, and this is what he uh, says. He says, the God of the tradition is one who always loves God's people, even in and through times of great judgment. Love is not a surface or occasional characteristic of God. By the way, um, if you look at other religions in the world, love is kind of a side item. It's not the, God's power is what his essence is. But in Christianity, in the Hebrew scriptures, God at essence is love. And love is basic to the identity of this God, and that divine character is manifest in and through all the anger and judgment that follows. Wrathful judgment is a contingent divine response to developments within the relationship of constant love. It is not the center when God does, quote, punish and or discipline and or allow consequences to happen, even for Israel. It's not because that's what he wants. It's because of what he wants to bring about ultimately. It's all about love. It's always about love. God remains the beloved of Israel throughout the story, and judgment is a strong sign of such love. Indeed, it is only because God loves that God chooses to judge, to mediate the consequences of sin in order to bring about the best possible future for those whom God loves. I think so often when people say God is love, it means that God is just nice. And that's not the case. And this story shows how deep and amazingly jealous God can be for the love of his people and the response he's looking for, just even much more so than any parent would have towards a child over that relationship. And that judgment does come. And we can see how God responds in this story. Because Isaiah does announce that this beloved is going to tear down the wall. He's going to basically let the wilderness take this, uh, this vineyard back because it's of no use. He'll command the clouds to stop raining. Babylon will come and trample Jerusalem and take them into exile. Now, I recall, um, and I've shared this before, and I think, um, I know I've used this illustration before, but it so fits, I just have to use it again. When I was in college, um, I was going to a, a Christian college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we went to the Ann Arbor Art Fair, some of my friends, which is a phenomenal, like it's off the chain, makes our art fairs down here look like little, you know, 
it's, is it the biggest in the Midwest or maybe, I don't know, the country. It's crazy, but they have you know, stages like this set up outside all over the place. And so we just happened to, uh, around, uh, we happened to come up to one of these stages and there was a mime um, performing. And it was just an, uh, he was really good at what he was doing um, without words, right? And um, his last performance for that day, he brought up a placard each time to say, kind of give you an, a clue as to what he was talking about. His last performance of that day, he put up a placard and all it said was God, G-O-D on it. So he comes off to the side of the stage and he starts walking on. He's God. He's looking around at the vast emptiness and he says, oh. so he throws out the stars into the sky and lights up the entire universe. He uh, spins out the sun and turns it on like a lamp. And then he makes the third rock from the sun called the earth. And on it then he forms out of the ground a man and a woman and places them on planet earth. And he turns around and is just looking at the beauty of this world. And there's a lot of humor and other things going on in this story. I'm keeping it short. Okay. But then he comes back to planet Earth and he's in like shock. You know, like, and he looks at the uh, man and the woman and he cannot believe they are like arguing with each other. And he picks them up and he kind of very concerned. He goes, now you shouldn't do this. No. And he places them back on the Earth. And he walks away, he thinks that's going to solve it. And, and he turns around, he sees them arguing again, and he picks them up, and this time he gives them a stern lecture. Places them back on the earth, he thinks that's going to solve it. He comes back a third time to the earth, he can't believe they are arguing, one of them has a gun, and he takes the gun away and he throws it, and he takes the, the man and the woman, and he spreads them as far apart as he can, and he crushes them back into dust. He stops the world from spinning. He turns off the sun. He wipes off the stars. And he walks off the stage. Dead silence of the crowd. That's how God could respond. That is not what happens in this story. That is not what happens. That is not the God of the Bible. Terence Frethheim again says this, the text does not claim that this vineyard used to be God's delight at some point in the past. The vineyard is still named God's delight. You could read that in the last verse. In the very midst of indictment and judgment, God still loves Israel. God still loves this world. God still loves his people when he takes them into exile. What more could God do for them? What could he do? Well, Jesus answers all of this. When you see the story played out, the vineyard does fall apart. They go off into exile. They come back, and the, the vineyard isn't quite ever put back together. But then Jesus shows up. What's fascinating is Jesus knew, everybody knew this parable, this story of the vineyard. And he uses it and transforms it into one of his parables of the tenants in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 21. You can read the whole parable there. 
It's during the last week of Jesus' life, just a few days before his crucifixion, and all the religious leaders were in front of him. All the opposition was around him, and Jesus says, hey, there was a master who owned a vineyard, and he put some tenants in charge of it. And each time the master would send a servant to the vineyard, they'd stone him, they'd kick him out, they'd beat him, They'd kill him. And the master's trying to figure out how in the world is he ever going to have this vineyard his very own again. And so what does he do? What more could he do? He sends, he says, I will send my son. They will show respect to him. And Jesus says that, knowing what's going to happen. And when the tenants saw the son... In Matthew 21, they said, come, let's kill him, and then the vineyard will be ours. The assumption, of course, is that the master's dead, and the son's just coming. And then Jesus asks the question, so what is the master going to do with this vineyard? It's kind of the same question that Isaiah asked. What is the master going to do, the beloved going to do with this vineyard? And Jesus says this at the end, because this story was really against the religious leaders of his day. He said, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone, he also shared that passage of the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. God does one last move. The most shocking, vulnerable, ridiculous move by saying, I'm going to send my son into the middle of this mess. I'm going to send my son. And as he is sent, and as we nail him to the cross and say, come, let's kill him, it exposes the wickedness of our own hearts and the grace of God in one final stroke. Now, why in the world did Jesus tell that parable? Just to get it back at the Pharisees? Why did Isaiah tell the parable just to indict the people of his day? No. Terence Fretheim says this again, to get them to recognize that they have, what they have done and to pronounce a verdict on themselves. In other words, to get them to bro- break apart, to be broken to pieces, to fall upon that stone and be broken. That our hearts are broken. That we repent. That we recognize how foolish we've been. That um, <laughs> to fall on him and to fall to pieces to realize everything that we've done and everything that we've said and how even our religious (laughs) and pious whatever hasn't done anything. And it's not that we've broken God's law. It's that we've been broken against God's law. God's law has always remained intact. And it's not that we have broken the rules, but that we have broken the heart of our beloved. Because God is still your beloved. And you are beloved by God. 
just as parents really aren't looking for a payback, they're just looking for a relationship. It's all God ever really wants. He's not looking for stuff. He's looking for you. He wants you, your heart. Now, will God bring judgment on this world as he did on Israel? Of course. But not because he despises this world, but because he loves this world. He judges it contingently to bring about a repentance in our lives as well. He'll bring it on the church. Judgment starts with the church, as Paul would say. But he does it to bring out a new life. The cross actually ends up killing not just Jesus, but all our religious, political, psychological justifications for running our lives our own way. And it leaves us with a vulnerable, self-giving, sacrificial love. What more can God do? You tell me. What else can we do but to respond in repentance this uh, advent into Christmas season to respond in faith and in love for our beloved, for our beloved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're amazed at uh, how bold, how shocking, how different Isaiah speaks to, about you and about your people, Israel, and how that does hit us as well, and how Jesus is that more that you've done. You've done something so radically unthinkable, Lord Jesus, to have us. All you want is us. Forgive us, Lord. We're always looking kind of in a transactional way at what do we get out of, you know, you, God, uh, faith, religion, church. Forgive us, Lord. You want a relationship. You don't care about transactions in that sense. Forgive us for how we've not lived justly or righteously. We have not responded to the character that you've shown us in your love and mercy and grace. Help us to be a people here at Thrive and in our lives on a daily basis to walk humbly with you, to seek justice and righteousness, Lord as Isaiah speaks these words, and Micah says what you really are requiring of us and wanting from us, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that we would be a place where people are loved as you have loved us, that people are treated justly as you have justified us, that people are our, uh, that our relationships are right because of our relationship with you, that you made us righteous and given us that status, Lord God. We do lift up and pray for your healing on many in our church today, for Will as he has gone through some very difficult uh, moments as a child, and for his parents, Lord, that you would just truly bless them and bring your healing to Will this day to relieve the fever and to bring him back to just that wonderful, joyful, happy child. We pray that you'd be with Bob and Joan as they're on a journey over his health conditions, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing there. We lift up to you Evelyn's friend, Amanda. We thank you for the birth of a child now, but the, tr the, the whole difficulty of her situation, Lord. Uh, <clears throat> we pray that you'd be with her 
and the trauma her children have faced from the father who's no longer in the picture. We pray, Lord, that you bring your healing and grace and mercy and that we can come alongside of Amanda and the family uh, during this season specifically to help her get back on her feet, to show her justice and righteousness. We lift up to you, O oh Lord, um, our church. Um, as people, um, as our college students are traveling back uh, today to Florida Gulf Coast and to this area, Lord, we pray that you keep them safe and that you would bring them together with us to worship you and to understand your goodness. That their lives are not a tangled mess, Lord, of all sorts of things as our priorities and everything else gets out of whack and this world is so confusing, but that you, um, you give us an understanding to clarify what life is all about in, the, in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you bless him in the last few weeks of this semester. Be with us in our Christmas celebrations as we are moving forward into them, Lord God. But beyond that, Lord, into the new year, we pray that you'd be with us at Thrive. It's been for all the Christian churches around the world. COVID has been a very difficult situation. And uh, we know that you love us and you want us to thrive. You want us to flourish, that your kingdom of God would grow. Help us to just grow in our dependence on you. And know that when we are weak, you are strong. And that with you on our side, nothing can really stand against us, Lord God. And give us the courage and the boldness and the wisdom and the humility to follow you and to be faithful to you and to serve you by serving others, to glorify you by caring and loving others, Lord God, in this world. And that we as a church are renewed in our mission and ministry to this community and this world, Lord God. All this we pray. And we pray, Lord, that you would renew us as we celebrate how you gave yourself, your heart, your very life to your disciples that night before your crucifixion. So prepare us, Lord, as we will celebrate your supper and provide, O oh Lord, for us your personal presence in our lives. And Lord, as we end our um, online streaming this day and as we... Uh, will now respond in giving thanks to you by offering ourselves with our offerings and tithes. We pray, Lord, that you provide all that you need for your kingdom to grow here at Thrive and through us to this world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>